Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. Hey, good morning, guys. Hey, good to see y'all. Hey, I'm standing here with Joseph and Kaylin Anderson, who you know and love. Joseph is our pastor at our Mercy Northeast campus. Good morning, Mercy Northeast. That's right. Love you guys. Um, We are standing here because we've got a a really cool update for you. Uh, I believe most of you know, but in case you don't, um, Joseph has entered the church planting residency with our network of churches called the Summit Collaborative, and we, Mercy Church, are going to be sending uh, them out to plant a church next year. The update that we have for you is the name of the church and where they're going to go to plant, all right? And then we got an interest meeting I want to tell you about. So um, I don't have any drums to roll, but uh, we're excited to announce to you that the Andersons will be next year planting Kingdom City Church in the heart of Atlanta, Georgia. Praise God. Really exciting. That's right. That's right. Ma'am, we've got an interest meeting coming up that I really want to encourage you to attend because I want you to hear the vision from uh, Pastor Joseph that God has given him for this church. Uh, There's a couple of ways you can respond in addition to that interest meeting. Man, I want you to go ahead now. This is one thing we can do, y'all. We want to be a church. If you're newer to Mercy, we are a church that desires to plant churches, okay? This is a good, uh, great, this is like an answer to prayer that we would raise up everybody. We call everybody to take their next step in following Jesus. We say we want to send God's people to all people, and that means sending our best, and the Andersons are our best, uh, which is bittersweet because I want to keep them here. Uh, but this is what God has called them to, and that's, that's a good. Gospel goodbyes are good, and we are, we're thankful for them even as hard as they might be. Um, I want us to commit to pray for the Anderson family and for Kingdom City Church. You just go ahead and commit to that um, over the next several months. They're not going anywhere yet. Over the next several months, they'll still be here. Uh, Joseph's in this residency. He's training uh, right now and preparing, honing the mission and vision that God's giving them. Um, so I want us to pray together, commit to pray for them. Secondly, man, I want you to consider giving uh, towards this church plan. I will tell you that as you give to Mercy Church, man, your generosity fuels our mission and makes this possible, makes his residency possible for us here. We've already been able to um, hire the guy that's going to be stepping in next, the next pastor for our Mercy Northeast campus. And there's more on that coming in the weeks to follow. But your generosity is making all that possible so that he can have some time to prepare to go. But man, above and beyond your tithe, you might consider giving to this new work. Um, And I hope you'll pray over that. And lastly, listen, God's going to call some of you to go. Uh, It took 30 people moving from Raleigh-Durham and Greensboro down to Charlotte uh, to come and start Mercy Church. And that uh, eight years later, here's what we have now. This kind of went with a vision and in belief that God was sending us and that may be what God calls you to do, all right? So I want you to begin praying over that as well. And that vision night is a good next step for you. I'm going to pray um, over the Andersons now. 
and you can join me uh, just by kind of extending your hand, saying, hey, I'm extending my hand, laying my hands on them just as I am here at all of our campuses. We'll pray together, and then we'll transition to our sermon. Let's, let's pray for them. Father, what a good, good gift the Andersons have been to the Mercy family. Um, we are, we have seen more of Jesus. We're better for you sending them into our church family, for making them a part of the Mercy family. And so it is with uh, anticipation, joy, maybe a little bit of a sorrow too, that we s- prepare to send them to the work that you have. But God, we know, uh, we, we ask you to go ahead and start tilling the soil now. God, we pray for the hearts of the people there in downtown Atlanta, that they would come to know Jesus through the step of faith that this couple's taking. We love them, Father. We pray protection for them, over them, against the enemy's attacks on them. I know it, Father. I know the enemy would want to knock it now at the start, and so we pray against it. Protect them in the mighty name of Christ. Protect their marriage, protect their children, and protect this new young church. Thank you for the months that we still have, and we pray that you would give Joseph especially a lot of clarity around um, what you're calling them to do. Give provision in abundance. I pray Ephesians 3 kind of prayer, more than we could ask or imagine, Father. Would you provide people, resources, uh, location, all that kind of thing. We need your help, and we love you, and we are thankful, and in advance, we celebrate the work that you're going to do. Pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Will you join me thanking the Anderson family, celebrating their step of faith? Man. All right. Y'all listen, um, we're moving into uh, a sermon that's in our series called It's Hard to Believe. And I don't have a good transition out of that really sweet moment to this one. So there it is. Now we're in the sermon. Um, In this series, It's Hard to Believe, we're talking about six of the common topics or discussions that are like, hey, we use the word roadblock, barrier, obstacle, whatever, that make it hard for our non-Christian friends, family, neighbors, coworkers, they feel like that's what makes it hard to believe in the Christian message, these things. Last two weeks of our series, this week and next, we're going to talk about one of the main gods of the age today, and that is the cultural ideology of sexuality. Now, parents, um, we sent an email out this week, but I know they don't always get out to everyone. So fear not, I'm going to create an off ramp here in a minute where we're going to, um, we're going to have a time of prayer. And normally prayer is just like for praying. But in this case, prayer is going to be your free opportunity to shuffle out and avail yourself of our wonderful kids ministry around here at Mercy Church. Okay. Because I'm kind of considering this a PG-13 sermon. All right. So if you want your kids to hang out in a PG-13 sermon, awesome, because they're going to encounter this stuff. Okay. But you know where your kids are at developmentally. And so I give that to you. Here's the two-week breakdown, okay, of where we're going. Today, we're going to talk about what I'm going to call the sexual revolution. Now, you might know that term. You might not. That term's been used by some as like a way to spew just venom in the name of God. It's been used by others as a rallying cry for rebelling against God, and I'm not trying to do either of those. My goal in the term revolution is to emphasize, though, how impactful the ideas of this movement have been on our society. My hope is by doing that, It will help us see the more loving way of the gospel of Jesus Christ as we contrast it. Now, when I'm talking about this movement, I'm talking about the movement that began in America in the 60s 
Uh, of course, it was around a lot longer than that, but in the 60s, it became popularized that believed uninhibited self-expression, particularly in the area of sexuality, was the chief value that would lead to human flourishing. It revolutionized the culture we live in. Some historians say even more than the American or industrial revolutions. That's what we're going to talk about today. Next week, we're going to talk about gender dysphoria and the transgender movement. Both of these are watershed topics in our cultural moment. It's sensitive. It's an area where a lot of confusion and pain exists. So today and next week, I hope to provide you with, if nothing else, a clear and loving explanation of the Bible's take on sexuality to help equip you to walk faithfully with Christ and to help others to do, to help you help others do so as well. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to walk you through the Bible's vision for sexuality. I'm going to do that first. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 6. To do that, I'll show you what God says, and then I'm going to explain the two tenets of the sexual revolution and how empty it is compared to God's rich, beautiful vision of sexuality. But first, like I promised, we're going to pray, okay? Um, and parents, move as you need to. Let's pray together. God, would you help us? God, would you help me? Father, I want... I want to decrease and you increase. Father, would my words be in the tone of that of Christ, truth in love? Give me that, Father. Would truth in love, would love win, would love reign, your great love, greater than all our sin, would it reign? Need you for that. And I'm thankful. I'm thankful for a true north in the scriptures that I can look to and trust you. I'm thankful that your way is better. Help me to share that today. Teach us from your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right. We're going to go into 1 Corinthians 6. We're going to be in verse, really all the way from verse 12 to like the beginning of chapter 7, but I'm going to start in verse 18. And I know a lot of times around here, I like to start, I can just ask you guys, are you ready? But instead of today saying, yeah, you might be like, no, this feels awkward. So I'm going to kind of just save you from that moment there. It does feel awkward. We're going to get into it. The world's talking about it. We should talk about it. Okay, here we go. First Corinthians 6, 18, flee sexual immorality. All right, we're in it. All right, welcome to the sermon. Start out a pretty clear command here. Let's talk about what it is. Let's define our terms. We got to know what God is telling us to flee from. See, our English translators have used two words. I normally don't, I only do Greek for you when it is important, okay? Or sometimes it's like just a really fun word, like splogma, but even that was important, all right? But look, this one's super important. Our English translators have taken one Greek term and made it into these two words, sexual immorality, but the one Greek term is porneia. It's where we get the word pornography from. This one's important because this term sets the terms of the biblical sexual ethic. Paul says, flee porneia. Porneia is like a junk, a junk drawer word that represents all sexual expressions possible outside of the sexual relationship between a man and a woman in marriage. That's it. That's the two categories of sexual expression in the Bible, okay? There's husband and wife sexual expression, and there is porneia. That's our two terms in scripture. There are two categories, all right? So you ask, and I get this asked, I, I, I get this asked, our student leaders get this asked, people get this asked all the time. 
Yeah, but does that include? Yes. Okay? Whatever you're thinking, it includes that. Yeah, but what about, what about engaged couples or people planning to get married? Outside of marriage between a man and a woman, pornea. Well, what if we don't go all the way? Any sexual expression. Let's just call it like it is, okay? Let's get the list out there. We're talking groping, masturbating, taking and sending nude or sexualized pics, sending sexualized texts and DMs. Any sexual expression. Outside of the marriage commitment, there's to be no intercourse, outer course, upper course, lower course, no coursing of any kind, okay? <laughs> Welcome to Mercy Church, if you're new with us. Here's the deal, y'all. I'm not sorry. We got to talk about what we're dealing with in the world and stop pretending like we're too sanitized to deal with the realities that are facing us and facing our children. That list, that's pornea. And to that list, the author says one word, flee. And then some of you come back with, yeah, but well, where's the line? I'm like, oh man, listen, the command is flee, not toe the line. Okay. So instead of talking about the line, think about it this way. My family and I, we spent some time, we watched some fireworks this week, okay? Um, you know what a bottle rocket is, right? All right. You light it, you light the fuse, and then it, it explodes. When you light the fuse, the bottle rocket then does what it is meant to do. The fuse goes, and then it goes up, and it explodes. If you don't want the rocket to go off, you don't light the fuse. What you don't do is light the fuse and then ask, now where's the line on the fuse that I need to stop it so that the rocket doesn't go off? That's ridiculous. You, you kind of get what I'm saying? You flee anything that's going to light the fuse. Listen, young men and women especially, well, let me as your pastor admonish you here. One of the guys say this, um, you know, Paul in Ephesians 6, we're going to get there in a few weeks. In Ephesians 6, he's like, put on the full armor of God and resist the devil. Like you walk outside, the devil's by your car when you leave today, which would be disturbing. Let's say is, you better bow up, right? Put on the armor of God. Let's go to work. But you walk outside and sexual immorality is waiting for you out there. Run, Forrest, run. You flee. You can't handle it. You get how like, that's a big deal that he's saying that. It's the one thing he's like, no, just run. Don't even try and fight. And I'm telling you, the world's understanding of sexuality, it's broken, it's twisted, it's constantly attacking itself and devouring itself, and cancel culture is out to take one mistake and destroy you forever for it. It's not the gospel, it's the anti-gospel. And it is fire you don't want to play with. Flee. Look, he goes on to talk about it. He says, every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. This is a crystal clear example of how different, you're going to hear me say this a lot, the word is from the world. The world says the person who satisfies whatever desire he has is to be praised. It says you're doing a morally good and right deed by gratifying your desire. The Bible says the opposite, that you're sinning against your own body. We're not even talking about other people yet. I'm talking about you. When you engage in pornea and sexual immorality, you're sinning against yourself. You're harming yourself. And right here's the thing. I just don't think anybody believes. I think we struggle to believe this. We believe if it feels good and it doesn't hurt anybody, what's the big deal? And the word comes along and says, well, actually, momentary pleasure may not be the best judge of what is good. There's a better way. 
You're created for better sex than the bill of goods the world is selling you. It's a classic example of word versus world. And you got to choose. I promise you the way of the world leads to pain and dissatisfaction and the way of Jesus leads to flourishing. We'll unpack in a minute how damaging pornea is, but suffice it to say, you're sinning against yourself. How? Well, if you go back up a couple of verses, you'll see how. Paul says you unite yourself with something other than Christ when this happens. And spiritually, what that's doing is you try and unite yourself. You're already united with Christ. Now you're trying to unite yourself with someone. It's tearing you apart. Look what he says, verse 15. Don't you know that your body, your bodies are a part of Christ's body? Should I take a part of Christ's body and make it a part of a prostitute? Absolutely not. Sexual sin is unique. That's what Paul is saying in this. It's uniquely harmful. You may say, wait, I thought all sins are equal. Yes, we said before, all sins are equal before God, but not, not all sins have equal effect in this life. There is a way that sexual sin imprints itself on you and stays with you. And you know what I'm talking about. Whenever someone comes to me to tell me their deep, dark secret they've been living with, a lot of the time, not all the time, but a lot of the time, it involves some form of pornea. It's amazing the shame and guilt and brokenness that this causes despite what it promises. But what makes it even worse, what makes it so uniquely tragic It's the only sin that you create a union with something. The drunk doesn't unite himself with alcohol. The glutton doesn't unite himself with food. They use it in excess. But the sexually immoral person takes his or her union with Christ, that spiritual body, and damages it by uniting it with false lovers. The way one scholar said it, what you're doing is you're sabotaging your union with Christ. Now in this moment, let me pause and say something. You might be tempted to think after all that, oh no, I have ruined myself. There's no hope for me. And I know you might be tempted to say that some of you are brave enough to tell me that. I want to tell you, mercy is not a house of perfect people. All of us have sinned. In fact, to help illustrate this, we're going to try a little experiment. I saw saw it done once before, really impactful. Remember that list I told you about Porneo? All the things that fall under the umbrella of sexual immorality. Let me talk to the adults, by the way, middle and high school students. You don't have to participate because I want you to be led by your church family here. If you have ever at one point in your life, talking to all people, all three campuses, if at one point in your life you have fallen short of God's standard for sexuality. God's standard, by the way, is Matthew 5, 27 and 28. If you've ever looked at a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery. In other words, it's not just our sexually immoral behaviors that fall short of God's standards, but our sexually immoral desires are sinful as well. So if you've ever fallen short of God's standards, even once in your life, I want you to raise your hand and your pastor will go first. All right, keep them up. Keep them up. Now, all three of our campuses, there are right now, people are identifying Hands up are sinners, hands down are liars, okay? That's what we have, all right? Put your hands down, all right? Now, here's the deal. My point is that we're not out to make you feel ashamed. We're here to expose the destructive lies of the ideology behind the sexual revolution and offer you a better way. We are not good people telling bad people how to live. We are redeemed people telling all people about the one good man that ever lived and how you can find redemption in him. And that's exactly what Paul points to next. Look at verse 19. Don't you know? 
don't you know, he's talking to Christians. Don't you know, that's why we get back together each week. I'm so big on the weekly worship gathering because sometimes the things that go on over the course of the week can make us forget and it's good to come back together and be reminded, don't you know? Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. Why? Here comes the gospel. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. There's the better vision. There's the better worldview about you than anything the world out there could offer you. Here's the main point of the sermon. In Christ, you are a sacred, redeemed child of God. That's who you are. In Christ, you are a sacred, redeemed child of God. Your body is a a temple, a sacred house for the Holy Spirit. It's not just flesh and blood. You're not just a physical being, you're a spiritual being. And when God saves you from sin, he comes and makes his home in you to guide you the rest of the days of your life. You're a temple now, a sacred house. Y'all, in the Old Testament, the temple was the sacred dwelling place of God. A sacred space so holy that the room where God dwelt in was called the Holy of Holies. And then Hebrews 10, what it says is that Jesus tore down the curtain that separated us from God and God left that space and came into his people. You see how sacred and holy you are and you're redeemed. You were bought. What did he say? You were bought. You were bought at a price. The gospel says when you were dead in your sin, Jesus did not cancel you. Culture says if you violate its ethical code, you must pay forever for what you did. You, in other words, you are your sin, but the gospel has a better way. Jesus says, you know what? Your sin's actually worse than you even realize. It separated you from God for eternity, but you're also more loved than you could ever imagine. Because instead of God making you pay forever, he says, what? You are bought at a price. The price of sin is death not just in this life, but eternal separation from God. And Jesus paid your price by shedding his blood on the cross. He purchased your life so that you could be reconciled to God. You belong to God now. There's this old hymn that has just gotten, I grew up in a church setting. Some of you know my story. And in that church setting, we sung out of this hymnal and one that continues to resonate with me more the more the older I get. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. He paid it all. I say that because some of you hate yourself because of what you did or what you are doing or because of your attractions. And you've been identifying yourself by that thing. It's been dominating you and you feel trapped in it. And I just want to help you reset where your identity comes from. I want you, I want to reset who you are. You are not that. Scripture says before Christ, you might have been prone to that, but now, no, 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 you're not that. Look at verse 11 of chapter six. Some of you used to be like this, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Heaven came down and went to work on you and you are redeemed and forever changed. You are a sacred, redeemed child of God now. That's your identity. You're not your sexual sin. 
You're not your attraction. You're not your divorce. You're not your abortion. You're not your addiction. You're not your eating disorder. None of those get to have their say over who you are. But in Christ, you are a sacred, redeemed child of God. Will you let that fill your lungs with fresh air today? And lay those other labels down at the feet of Christ and receive the truer status that you are a sacred, redeemed child of God. And if you're like Pastor Spence, you've repeated that phrase a lot. You better believe it. The world is repeating its label over you thousands of times every day. So you better believe I'm going to repeat over you what God says. He says, glorify God in your body. This is now his action. So flee and glorify. Instead of porneia, choose glory. Don't choose the lesser, shallow, destructive porneia. Choose glory. That leads me to the two lies of the sexual revolution that I want to talk about today. And by the way, these are just a kind of way of summarizing the common things that, that I hear in this space. One we've already dealt with, so I'll be a little bit quicker here. The first lie of this ideology is that your desires are your core identity. And y'all, desire does not equal identity, but the power of the sexual revolution is to get you to think that it does. For example... It doesn't say you experience same-sex attraction. It says you are gay. You catch the difference? It's the distinction between experience and identity. Because if they can get you to accept this as your identity, then they can control your behavior. But the problem is your desires change constantly. And the culture is constantly changing and telling you what desires are morally acceptable and what desires aren't morally acceptable. Right? Um, Tim Keller, one of the greatest influences on me as a pastor. He used, he used to use this illustration, it's weird to say used to, but he used to use this illustration um, about a Scottish warrior in 1880. He said, this Scottish warrior in 1880 has two desires. He's got deep feelings of violence and anger. And secondly, he's attracted sexually to men. Now in that culture at that time, it's an honor-shame culture, his feelings of violence and aggression would be celebrated and his same-sex attraction would be shamed. So he would be encouraged to act on one and discouraged and encouraged to suppress the other. But you put that same man in uptown Charlotte today. Today, his same-sex attraction will be celebrated and affirmed, but his anger and violence will be suppressed. He'll go to anger management and try to rid himself of that desire because it is so shamed in our culture. Why did he change? Same person. Because everyone has a grid that they filter their behaviors and decisions through. And if you don't have something supernatural, some ultimate authority like scripture, then you will just always do what the culture tells you to do. Scripture says you belong to God. You are not your own. And if you're like, no, 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 I belong to me. I'm telling you, you can either serve God or culture but you will serve something. You'll serve one of those two. You're wired up for it. And what we're saying today is your sexual desires are a terrible thing to serve and a terrible thing to determine your identity. They change all the time. They intensify one season, subside the next. The better voice to speak your identity is the unchanging voice of God. And he has said in Christ, you are a sacred, redeemed child of God. That's God's better truth over you. Your propensity is not your identity. Your desire is not your definition. And that brings me to something I need to say. 
Some of you here experience same-sex attraction. And no one is shouting louder in our current cultural moment that you are your desires than the pride community. The world wants to define you by your attractions. They want to say that is who you are, and then they want you to be proud of it. And because of the volume and intensity of that message in the world right now, and on top of that, if you've experienced some kind of church hurt related to your same-sex attraction, man, you can feel a little lost between two worlds. Because there's a community that rejects God but seems to affirm you. And then there's a community that, you know, affirms God, but you fear might reject you. That's an awful feeling. Let's say a couple of things. First, I want you to know you're not alone. I have three of our church members who experience same-sex attraction share their experience with me this week. It's incredibly brave to do that. All three echoed that feeling. All three said in powerful, moving words that through faith in Jesus, they found identity stronger and more soul-satisfying than sexuality could ever give them. And in walking in the Holy Spirit, submitted to God, they've found security and intimacy in Him, and all of them are praying for our church to be a place where you can take your next step. I was given permission to share with you, um, really, a lot of their story. I'm only going to share a little bit, a little bit of one. Um, one of our brothers, he said, the gospel shaped everything about how I view my sexuality today. Because Jesus is Lord and Savior, the Bible is the ultimate authority in my life. It clearly defines how God designed relationships, and regardless of my desires and attractions, I want to follow what God says is good, not what I or society says is good. And because of Jesus' love for me, I'm able to pursue his plan for my life. Let me go down. He says, the gospel roots our identities in Christ. My identity isn't reduced to my attractions. I know there are others like us at Mercy, but they're fearful of being that vulnerable. I know how terrifying it is and just how amplified that fear is when in isolation. I want a space to connect with them, care for them, give them that same message. They're not alone. We're not defined by our attractions. Finding our identity in Christ is ultimately what defined us. And they closed with, we are Christians. Amen. Propensity is not identity. Desire is not definition. Sexuality is not salvation. We are Christians. And I hope if that's you, you'll feel like you have a home here where you can take your next step. If that's your story, these three want to be a resource to you, and I'm happy to connect you. You can use this. It's a big step of courage for you to use my email, pastorspence at mercycharlotte.com. I'm happy to be that connector. Normally myself, my assistant, check that email. My assistant's not going to be checking that email this week. I'm happy to connect you over. Listen, church, the world out there will hear the testimony of that brother and crucify him for not defining himself by their definition. Will we do the same? I hope not. And by the way, if you've been hurt by the church, I recognize where I'm standing in the pulpit of a church. And if it's even been mercy or maybe it's another church, I just want you to know I'm sorry. Praise God. He loves you. He is perfect. His love is unchanging. And it is greater than even the sin that was committed against you. The world says to us, church, the world says to us, you are either affirming or non-affirming. And what they're really saying is we must either affirm the person, excuse me, affirm the desire or reject the person. Can we just agree we're not buying that? 
Love and affirmation are not the same thing. I mean, any parent of a small child will even tell you that's true. The word says something way better. The word says in Christ, you are a sacred, redeemed child of God. So we will love the person made in the image of God, Genesis 1 and Titus 2, deny all worldly lust because why? We were bought with a price. So we'll never be a church that affirms sin of any kind, but we will always strive to be a church that welcomes sinners of every kind. That's who we are. Sinners of all kinds. Once we were not a people, but now we are God's people. Because once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. In short, we are Christians. Which leads me right to the second lie of this ideology promoted by the sexual revolution. Lie number two. Fulfillment is found in unrestricted sexual expression. The Bible says flee. See the difference here? The Bible says flee, flee pornea. But the world says, well, whoa, such instruction like that is restrictive. You're restricting your happiness. So here's what you got to decide. Who will you follow, the word or the world? Because the word says God created sex as a pleasurable gift for unifying a husband and wife and for multiplying the human race. I mean, can we remember that for a second, Genesis 1? God created sex. We understand that? He didn't have to make sex the means of procreation. He could have done it any number of ways. We could have reached a certain age, and he could have just like makes our thumb to where it just pops off, and then we plant it in the ground, and then we water it, and bloop, there's a human. Could have done it that way. Didn't do it that way. Instead, he made sex, and he made it in a way that's going to get clipped. He made sex. That's, I, I know it is. Oh, man. That's what he did, right? He made it in a way that is an enjoyable gift for a husband and a wife. It's for more than procreation. It's for celebration. It's for the celebration of the gift of marriage, and there's nothing like it. There's a whole book of the Bible called Song of Solomon that expresses the sensual power of sex, and it celebrates. In fact, right here in 1 Corinthians, our next verses go to it. Paul says to Christian husbands and wives, 1 Corinthians 7, verses 2 through 4, but because porneia is so common, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman should have sexual relations with her own husband. A husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise a wife to her husband. A wife does not have the right over her own body, her husband does. In the same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. So, quick aside to married couples here. Because of the, listen, the draw to porneia does not end when you say, I do. Because it is a gift from God meant to unify you and to keep you unified, married Christian couples should be having sex regularly. It's waiting on the amens. Now, <laughs> God's word. Now, this isn't, this isn't a marriage sermon, but this part of the sermon is. I'm not going to define regular for you, but you two do need to agree on what that is. And if there's something keeping you from that agreement, that's when you step out and you get help, right? If you step out, you get help. If you husband, you read that and you're like, sermon over, pastor, we're to do. I'm like, slow down, soldier. Don't forget, your body belongs to her. She may not have the same desire. My point here 
is that this verse, the whole act of sex is not about taking, it's about serving. The Song of Solomon is a love story where the woman feels so pursued, loved, safe, secure, and desired before they ever consummate the marriage. Her man's cultivated an environment she can flourish in, she responds. That's the word's view. Let's talk about the world's view for a second. The world says, claims, fulfillment is found in unrestricted sexual expression. But is it? Listen, God's word should be enough. If you're a Christian, God's word should be enough for you. But if you're not a Christian, I get it. It's not your ultimate authority. And maybe some of you just feel like you need more evidence to back it up. So I'm gonna give you some statistics. I'm gonna give you a lot of statistics. I'm gonna give them to you really fast. Uh, In fact, at one point, I'm pretty sure screen's gonna be filled with charts and we're gonna have a little fun with this, okay? Um, But mostly just to get a point across. Got these from uh, pastor friend Josh Howerton. He pulled these together a while back from just a whole whole bunch of different sources. I'm happy to share these. Listen, the generally accepted starting point for the sexual revolution is the 1960s, again, in America. While the ideology goes back way further, that's when it hit the States and when we start seeing big societal changes. Sociologists report that happiness levels have been declining since the 1960s. Gen Z is on record as the angriest, loneliest, most depressed generation ever. The sexual revolution promised freedom that could lead to happier relationships, but what's actually true? Well, what's actually true is divorce rates have doubled since the 1960s. Cohabitation is shown by non-Christian sociologists to increase your likelihood of divorce by 50%. The Wall Street Journal reported that religious people who marry young, this is the journal, without ever having lived together, have the lowest likelihood of divorce in America. Americans who cohabitate before marriage are less likely to be happily married and more likely to break up. In other words, you live together for marriage and you tell me, yeah, I'm just kicking the tires to see if it works. I'm like, well, maybe she's not a tire. Maybe she's made in the image of God. But what the Bible's telling you is that you're not training for marriage. What statistics are saying is you're not training for marriage. You're training for divorce. The sexual revolution says, okay, but what about harmless things like pornography? That's not hurting anyone, is it? You know, the 80 to 90% of all teenagers will be exposed to pornography use with the average age of first exposure being 11. One in three underage teenagers report having seen non-consensually shared nudes of other minors. That's child pornography. And all research shows a correlation between sex trafficking, violence towards women, and rape culture, and pornography. Sexual abuse is at its highest rate in our nation's history. One in four women will be victims of sexual abuse by the age of 18. The revolution isn't progressing us. It is hurting us. By the way, fertility rates are decreasing since the 1960s. The idea that this is going to lead to human flourishing. The sexual revolution hasn't even led to more sex, but less as it's found to have been so harmful on people. The revolution says marriage is an archaic institution that traps you in commitment, which leads to a tired, hard life. But in the reality... (laughs) Data consistently shows that more sexual partners a person has in their life, the lower their satisfaction is likely to be. The Center for Family Study said by far, the highest rate of satisfaction is among people who have one sexual partner for their lifetime. The General Social Survey did a study on happiness in Americans and found that the happiest men in America are married men with kids. The happiest women in America are married women with kids. That's not me, listen, single brothers and sisters, it's not me knocking Being single, don't hear it that way. Here is me trying to help you see the lie that we've been sold for three generations and we need to stop buying it. Okay, there's a a woman named Louise Perry, a secular British progressive feminist, okay? 
She says in her article, The Case Against Sexual Revolution, she says, the task for practically minded feminists then is to deter men from CAD mode, which is basically being a womanizer. Our current sexual culture does not do that, but it could. In order to change the incentive structure, we would need a technology that discourages short-termism in male sexual behavior, protects the economic interests of women and mothers, and creates a stable environment for the raising of children. We do already have such a technology, even if it's old, clunky, and prone to periodic failure. It's called monogamous marriage. You, you catch that? Uh, upstream, the prophets of the revolution, the prophets of the world are even saying it didn't work. Here's a few headlines. Let me just pour these out on you. The outlet, The Critic, says the sexual revolution has failed Generation X women. Washington Post, consent is not enough. We need a new sexual ethic. As long as two consenting adults does not work as a sexual ethic. Another one, too risky to read in your 20s? Not if you avoid cohabitating. The Times, women have been betrayed by a culture of porn gone wild. The Atlantic, consent was never enough. A generation of Americans have tried a new form of sexual morality and have found, haven't just found it wanting, they have found it profoundly harmful. The New York Times, dating is broken, going retro, could fix it. Change all these two. People discover what the Bible said a long time ago. Right? My point in all this is just to show you that the data and the experience are revealing what the Bible's been telling us all along. Don't buy the lie. Don't buy the lie. The fulfillment is found in unrestricted, unrestrained sexual expression. That's the lie. The gospel truth, fulfillment is found only in a relationship with Christ. And then in following submission to his ways for all of life, then you'll flourish. Then you'll flourish. Look, I don't know how all this lands on you guys. I hope you hear it all with grace. The idea behind this whole series is trying to give some answers filled with truth and love to the big questions of our day. So let's talk about where we go from here. Next steps in following Jesus. It's always so important for me as your pastor to try and give you some handles. I'm gonna go ahead and tell you, I think several of them will involve you talking with somebody and that can be scary depending on where you're at. Some of you need to take a step to get help from where porneia, sexual immorality, is dominating your life. Statistics are what they are. There are bunches of people sitting here today that some form of sexual sin is dominating your life. And you, you are not that sin. You can get help. And I know that because Jesus got out of the grave and the same power that brought him out of the grave is available to you. The same victory. We've got a ministry here called Proven Men and Proven Women where you can get help. We'd love to tell you more about that. There's this great verse in Isaiah. Matthew quotes about people encountering Jesus. He says, those walking in darkness have seen a great light. And those living in the land of the shadow of death, light has dawned. You might be walking in darkness, but there is hope for you. There is light for you. The grace of God is greater than all our sin and he invites you to walk in that light and find healing. We're not good people trying to tell bad people how to behave. We're redeemed people telling all people that in Christ, you are a sacred redeemed child of God. Some of you need a friend to help you walk through, to help you walk through following Jesus when you experience same-sex attraction. You need the church to be the family scripture calls it to be. We wanna help you, like I said, you can email me and I'm happy to make introductions. 
We're going to continue to try and flesh out the best way to create those introductions. For now, this is what we have kind of as a start. Many of us need to repent simply from treating casually something God created and made holy. We need to pray. That's what we're going to do. We're going to take some time to pray. It's how we're going to close this sermon. Um, We're going to have a time of prayer at all three of our campuses. You're going to stay there at your seat. And I want this to be a time where you pray for, uh, maybe your prayer is probably two or three things. You're going to respond as God leads you. It's probably part confession and repentance. Because y'all, we can't experience the freedom of forgiveness that Christ offers until we confess the sin he already sees. So we start with confession. And then it's a prayer of receiving the forgiveness God offers in Christ. And it's a prayer for protection to help you walk forward and strengthening, helping you walk forward in holiness. And this doesn't have to be silent, okay? If you're here, especially, uh, I'm gonna say, husbands, if your wife is beside you, you need to pray together and lead her in that prayer. Friends, brothers, sisters in Christ, maybe you need to just grab one another and pray over one another. Group up and pray together. Don't let the enemy shame you into isolation. All right? I'm not going to buy that lie. But you pray as God leads all three of our campuses. I'm going to open that time in prayer. I'm going to hand it over to you. Um, at Mercy Northeast, Mercy Union County, Pastor Jay, Pastor Michael come and they'll close that time. I'll close it here at Providence Road. And then we'll continue to worship together. Let's pray. God, thank you for your grace. We are not We're not our sin, we're not our attractions, we're not our desires. We are sacred, redeemed children of God. Thank you. I pray that, Spirit, would you, um, anything that I've said that has not been honoring of you, wipe it away from our memories, replace it. Father, would your word, we were bought with a price. Christ went first and went further with that warm our hearts towards confession that we know forgiveness is there when we confess not judgment but forgiveness the judgment went on Christ help us to confess Father make us holy help us to glorify you with our bodies lead us in that even in that prayer that we pray now We need you for that. Church family, you take the next couple of minutes and you pray as God leads you. Confession, repentance, receiving forgiveness. Pray for strength to glorify God in your body, to glorify God in this area of life. Pray for protection for our elders and pastors and leaders for our whole church. You take the next couple of minutes, you pray as God leads. Those walking in darkness have seen gray light. Father, I pray that the light of Christ will outshine the shame, guilt, fear that the enemy would want 
to trap us in. May we walk in the hope of the redemption given to us in Christ. May we walk together as a church family. God, I pray for more confession and repentance. God, make us a holy people, and I know that that has to happen. God, give us our children, protect our children. May we change the narrative for the next generation to not buy the lies that we've been sold, but to walk in the better way of Christ, sacred, redeemed children of God. We need your help for that. We are lost without you and your help. I pray over brothers and sisters, the church family, pray over nuclear families and marriages. God, help us to glorify you. Bless us as we try to walk forward faithfully. What we've heard from your word today and prayed in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.